The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. When I was in fifth grade, I had my first encounter with death. My family had moved from South Dakota out here to Virginia when I was in fourth grade. And so I'd spent about a year apart from my mom's family who lived in South Dakota, who I grew up with, who I was very close to. In particular, I was very close with my grandmother and my grandfather. I spent a lot of time in their home. Well, I still remember the day, one day I was at my after-school program. Both my parents worked, and so I was at the after-school program, and my dad came early to pick me up. And I thought, surprise? Are we going somewhere? Like, what's, what's the deal, you know? Coming to get me early. And so on the way home, my dad hardly said a word. And we got home, and my mom was sitting in the kitchen, and she was crying, and she brought me over, and she hugged me, and she said, your grandmother fell asleep, and she didn't wake up. She died. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I remember how I grieved. I remember going up into my room and weeping, my parents coming in to comfort me. I remember talking about our plans to go to the funeral that evening. And then something happened. I don't know exactly how this works. I don't, I, someone here probably can tell me how this works. But I went to bed and I woke up and I had somehow convinced myself that my grandmother had not died but she had only fallen asleep and was in a coma. And so I went through the whole day convincing myself that, or thinking truly, that my grandmother was simply in a coma. And so I was again after school at the after school program, and Mr. Steve, the counselor there, he came up to me and he said, Ben, I, I just want to let you know I'm really sorry to hear about your grandmother passing away. And I said, oh, Mr. Steve, don't be silly. If my grandmother had died, I would be crushed, I would be devastated. But she's not dead. No, she's just in a coma. Silly Mr. Steve. And he kind of was, oh, okay, Ben. You know, he kind of backed off. But my dad came to pick me up then that evening, and we were out in the hallway in the school, and he, we were talking, and I said, Dad, isn't this so silly that Mr. Steve thought that Grandma died, that she had not just fallen asleep? And my dad looked at me, and he said, no, Ben. Your grandmother really did die. She's gone. And then for a second time, I had to relive the trauma as I broke down again in the hallway and I experienced the weight of my grandmother's death. I've looked back on that period of my life uh, several times, wondering what was going on there. What was happening to me? I mean, I was a well-adjusted fifth grade kid, right? What was happening to me in that moment that I, my mind would play a trick on me in that way? As I've come to think about this more, as an adult and now as a Christian, maybe my mind wasn't actually playing a trick on me. Maybe this was my mind's way of trying to deal with an unnatural reality in a natural way. See, it's a very important question we must ask about death. Is it natural or is it unnatural? And what I mean by that is death just the way it is? Is it just a part of life? Is that just sort of what waits for all of us? Is it natural? Or is it unnatural? 
Is it not the way it's supposed to be? Is there something about death that is not a part of the way this world is supposed to be? Most of us have been conditioned to think that death is natural. Death happens in sanitized environments. It happens behind hospital doors and the like. And we can become conditioned to think that death is just normal. But the scriptures are clear that death is not normal. It is unnatural. And so if that is true, then that should cause us to ask the question, is it possible for death to be undone? Is there hope that awaits for us beyond death? This morning, we're going to finish our study in 1 Corinthians, in this long, beautiful passage about the resurrection, by talking about the hope that it brings to us. And now you should know that when the Bible speaks about hope, it's not speaking about some sort of just blissful wishing for the best about the future. When we speak about hope, what we mean is a certainty about the future that is based on the guaranteed promises that we know in the present. It's a certainty about the future that we know that is guaranteed to us. And so by the time you leave here this morning, I want you to leave here with more hope in the future resurrection and an understanding of what difference that makes here in the present. So, three questions I want us to answer from our text this morning. We're going to kind of group our time together. The first question is, how will the resurrection take place? The second is, what is guaranteed to us in the resurrection? And the third is, what difference does the resurrection hope make in the present? But before we get into those, let's read our passage together. We are in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll begin reading in verse 51. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, you can use one of those. We'd invite you to go out to our Welcome Center after the service where we have a small gift for you that includes a Bible for you to take home to read. But let's turn our attention now to God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, these words leave an impression that I confess it is difficult to perceive the glory and it's difficult to come to this text and think, how could I add any more to what has been written? Lord, I pray that you would use my words to make your truth, your glory more evident to us and that you would fill us with more hope. 
Cause us to sit under your word and not over it to bring about new life, new faith, new hope in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How will the resurrection take place? Everything about the passage we just read is incredible. Almost every single word contains within it enormous power, assurance, glory, about the glory of God. We, we, we read so much here about what has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I know we started low this morning talking about death, but we can only go up from here. And there's some pretty amazing heights in this passage, and it begins in verse 51. Behold, look, see, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling, in the blink of an eye, we shall be changed. Paul is speaking with confidence because he is staking his life and breath on the truth of what Jesus said in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Paul did. And we confess this belief every time we recite the Apostles' Creed. I want to drill down, though, into verses 51 and 52 in this concept of the twinkling of an eye. In a moment, we shall be changed. And I want to answer this question how will the resurrection take place? What will it be like? You know, when Neva and I were preparing for the birth of Felix, we attended a series of pregnancy and birthing classes. And they wanted us to know just enough information about what was happening in the woman's body, what was happening to the baby, what we would be feeling, what it would be like, in order to take away the fear of the unknown. They wanted us to take away the fear of the unknown. Well, while God has not given us most of the details, I believe he has given us enough to know that death need not be a terrifying experience for those who are in Christ. He's given us enough to take away our fear, and the weight of his glory shines through the darkness of death. There are three very important passages in the scriptures which detail the resurrection and what it will be like, and there are th these are three passages that you should know. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, and 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to briefly survey each of these three texts to bring out three things about what the resurrection will be like. The first thing to know is that for a time, believers will be away from their bodies. For a time, believers will be away from our bodies. Now, Paul says here in this text that our resurrection will happen in the blink of an eye. And this passage is referring to what will happen when Christ comes again to bring in the new heavens and new earth and to usher in his kingdom in its fullness. He will make all things new. Christ came once in his earthly ministry to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and he purchased redemption for his people. And he promised to come again to bring us home and to make all things new. 
This is why the angel said at Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus will return in the same way he was seen going into heaven. But that raises the question of what is promised to believers who die before the Lord returns? This is where our other two passages, 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4, are helpful. So I want to look at 2 Corinthians 5 first. There in verse 6, the apostle speaks of our life now as being away from the Lord. He said this, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now that should strike us as a little bit curious because in one sense that is not true. The scriptures are clear that those who confess faith in this Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they are now in Christ and brought near to God. This is what the scriptures teach in Ephesians 2. There the scriptures say that in Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What we have now in this life is an immense treasure and a great communion with the Lord that is sweet. And many of you know that as time goes on, it gets even sweeter. And yet there is a tension because in relationship to how close to God we will be, Paul can say that right now we are away from the Lord. Think of this like kind of in degrees. Compared to where we were, we are incredibly near to the Lord now. Compared to where we will be, we're still away from the Lord. Does that make sense? What awaits for us when we close our eyes on this life and open our eyes in the next is a communion with the Lord that is even sweeter than we can comprehend in this life. Paul continued in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. He said, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so here, what we read in 2 Corinthians 5 is that Paul is giving us just enough detail to know and to rest assured that when we die, that when we face death, we have nothing to fear. But he is also telling us that if we die before the Lord returns, we will be away from our bodies. We will still be waiting for the Lord to return to bring about the resurrection of the dead. We will be immeasurably closer to the Lord in a new glorious spiritual state, but it will not be our final state. So, second thing I want us to see is that we will return with Christ. We will be away from our bodies for a time, but then we will return with Christ. Our bodies will not be resurrected and perfected until Christ comes again, and this is exactly what Paul spoke of in our call to worship in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There he told us, I believe, in greatest detail how the resurrection will take place. Beginning in verse 15, he said, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. If the Lord delays, we die before his return. 
We will be away from our bodies in a glorious new spiritual state and then we will have the privilege of returning with him when he comes again. And finally, we will receive material newness. We will be made new. You notice here in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul does not say that the perishable will put on the immaterial. It's not what he says. He says the perishable will put on the imperishable. See, there's something more that awaits us than a spiritual state with the Lord. As great as that spiritual state will be, what awaits us at Christ's return is our perishable bodies becoming imperishable, corruptible becoming incorruptible. We shall be raised together with those who died in Christ before us and we will be forever with the Lord. What will the resurrection be like? It will be glorious. And it will be a heightened sense of communion, a real communion with the Lord that we can barely comprehend even now. And so, dear saints, I want to say to those of you who know that your time is coming. Fear not death. When you close your eyes and open your eyes anew, the Lord will be there and you will sense, you will feel, you will embrace a new communion with the Lord that is even sweeter than you can imagine. And we will be forever with the Lord. What is guaranteed to us, though, in the resurrection? Question number two, what is guaranteed to us in the resurrection? In Christ, we know not only how the resurrection will take place, our fears can be overcome, but we also know what is guaranteed to us at the time of his resurrection, at the time of our resurrection, sorry. I'm looking at the end of verses 54 through verses 57 here, and here... Again, I want to point out three things that are guaranteed to us in the resurrection. First, death is swallowed up. It's swallowed up. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 25, which is a part of this wonderful prophecy about God's final victory over death. And I encourage you to go back and read those verses this week. Paul here is making it clear to us that what was once prophesied long ago by Isaiah will be fulfilled on the day of Christ's return at our resurrection. Now, for those of you who have seen or read The Return of the King, the third Lord of the Rings book, I love, um, I'll confess I'm still halfway through the second book, so I only know the movie. Um, (laughs) Forgive me. But I love the way the movie portrays it at the end when the, the ring is finally tossed into the fire of Mount Doom. Do you remember what takes place? The great eye of Sauron panics for a moment. Then it collapses in on itself. And then his dark tower collapses. And then what happens? The ground opens up. And all of Mordor sinks into this great sinkhole. And it continues to expand and expand as the forces of darkness are swallowed into the earth. I have to imagine this is what Tolkien had in mind when he wrote that scene. Death is swallowed up 
The last enemy, as Paul says early in this chapter, is destroyed. It will be swallowed up. And what does this mean for us? It means that while the resurrection is not a consolation for our suffering, nor is it a removal of our suffering, it is a promise of the defeat of suffering. Death is our last enemy, but it does not have the last word. It will be swallowed up. Second, death is swallowed up, but death will also lose its sting. This is what Paul says here twice. Paul says that death will lose its sting, and he adds what is almost a parenthetical thought. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, if you want a full explanation of verse 56, you need to go study Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 7. We don't have time to do that here. Again, I invite you to do that this week. But I think it is sufficient to say that for Paul, it was impossible to speak of the defeat of the powers of death without also speaking of the defeat of the power of sin and the shame and condemnation that the law brings. The powers of death and sin and the shame of the law are so closely linked that it is impossible to mention the defeat of one without the defeat of the others. Those who are set free from death will also be set free from sin and will also be set free from the shame that the law brings. Praise God. All of this is Paul's way of saying that death cannot really kill us. Like a scorpion whose stinger is removed, and that is the imagery here. It can't kill you anymore. It has no poison. It has no bite. The venom is gone. It may try, but it cannot kill. The power, the sting of death, of sin, and the shame of the law will be finally and totally removed. Third, what is guaranteed to us at the resurrection is total victory through Jesus. Now, When Jesus came to the tomb of of Lazarus, we read only a small excerpt of this in our time this morning. But what was happening there? Jesus comes to the tomb. His friend was dead. It had been four days. What was happening in that moment? Our English translations don't always capture the full weight of Jesus' emotion in this moment. Most of our translations speak of Jesus weeping, of being deeply moved in his spirit. But perhaps a better translation of the emotion that Jesus felt at Lazarus' tomb was outrage. Fury. He was weeping, yes, but not weeping merely with grief, but also with rage. Why? Because Jesus knew that death is not natural but unnatural. And it is robbing his creation of life and joy. And that moved him with fury. John chapter 11 is a cosmic showdown between the eternal son of God and the forces of sin and death. Some of you may have heard it said before that Jesus' power over death is so great that had he not used Lazarus' name in particular, that all the dead and all the graves of the whole earth 
would have broken forth from their graves. Jesus has complete and total power over the grave. Notice he did not have to say, Lazarus, come back to life. Lazarus, come forth. Spoken to a man who was already alive. The repeated idea here in our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is that we will share in Christ's victory over the forces of sin and death at the resurrection. Jesus displayed his power over death when he raised Lazarus and others from the grave. He showed his victory over death in his own resurrection. The grave could not hold him. The guarantee of the resurrection is that death can no longer hold those of us who are in Christ. We will share in his victory. God has given us enough to know that we need not fear death, for in the resurrection we are promised that death will be swallowed up, death will lose its sting, and we will share in a complete and total victory over the grave. But what difference does this resurrection hope make for us in the present? There's this great quote that it's, uh, it's now attributed to Martin Luther, although he probably didn't say it. We're going to run with it, though. Uh, legend, it's a legend now, but it's great theology, so we can use it. The legend says that Luther was supposedly asked, what would you do if you knew Christ was returning tomorrow? You know what he said? I would plant a tree. That's it. I would plant a tree. Luther or not, that's great theology. That's great theology. Why? Because if you have resurrection hope, then you know that the things we do in this life have eternal consequence for the life that is to come. If you know that all of creation and all of time is going somewhere, if you know that there is such a thing as a better future, as true love, as true justice, then you know that what you do in this life matters. How you live your life now is going to change in light of what you believe about where this world, about where we are all going. See, if resurrection hope hasn't really changed how you view the present, how you live in the present, I'm afraid that maybe you haven't grasped resurrection hope. Verse 58 is one of the best therefores in the Bible. It comes after 57 verses about the resurrection. And Paul concludes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does that mean for us? Well, you guessed it, three things. First, hope in the resurrection produces a steadfast quality in us. Resurrection hope gives us a confidence in our knowledge of the world to come, which allows us to be firm in the present. And if you want to know what this looks like, all we have to do 
is look no further than the Christians around the world being arrested, hunted, even killed for their faith. The Christians in China being arrested, never to be seen again. The Christians in Nigeria being killed by extremists, unwilling to renounce their faith. They remain steadfast in their confession of the Lord despite the trial, despite the struggle that comes their way. That's resurrection hope. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who or what do you fear that prevents you from being steadfast? Is it the fear of shame or judgment of a friend or coworker for living out or sharing your faith in your relationships? Maybe you know that's something in front of you. You need to do the right thing. But you know there's going to be consequences for doing the right thing and what God is calling you to do. Resurrection hope makes us steadfast, firm. Second, resurrection hope causes us to be immovable, makes us immovable. This is the only time in the scriptures, where this Greek word is used. I think that's significant. It literally means to be unshakable. In light of the resurrection, we ought to be unshakable. A month ago, I probably would have not been able to explain this to you very well. But I think I understand this better now. Most of you have heard by now, I believe, that one of my mentors, Dr. Howard Griffith, went to be home with the Lord a few weeks ago after his long battle with cancer. His homegoing service was last Saturday and it was a sweet family reunion of seminary and presbytery friends and family. We were all deeply moved by the testimonies that were given there and perhaps none more than from his children, some of his children who shared eulogies. And what they revealed to us was that at one point last year, when things weren't going well for Howard, he told his wife, Jackie, in secret, that I just want to show my kids what it looks like to die well in the Lord. Do you know what that looked like for him? No matter how bad things got, he used every opportunity not to focus on himself but as an opportunity to teach and encourage others. Do you know what that is? That's being immovable, unshakable by the fear of death. Faithful until the very end. Most of us spend our days in a blissful, ignorance of death, which is really just our foolish way of trying to outrun it. But apart from Christ, death is an unstoppable force that comes for us all. But in Christ, we are immovable. Death is no longer unstoppable, and it no longer has the power to shake us with fear. We are steadfast, we are immovable, and finally, 
Resurrection hope causes us to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Now, a million examples of great men and women of the faith that we could give here of this, but I want to share with you a testimony that has been on my heart, that has been really weighing on me, has been convicting me, that I've been wrestling with and thinking about almost every day for weeks. I've been slowly working through the first of three volumes that historian Taylor Branch wrote on the public life and work of Dr. King. Three books, a thousand pages each, so you might say it's taking some time. I'm currently in the year 1961 with the work of the Freedom Riders and those who are laboring for voter registration. Friends, I have been deeply moved by their example. How can you endure bus bombings, regular beatings, threats, the murder of your friends, being drugged into prison and then drug out naked into a country prison, left alone, naked, in a cell for days on end, and still resolve to keep about your work? How can you be in a crowded prison cell for months and deny bail? Do you know how these individuals passed their time in prison? They sang spirituals and preached sermons to one another. Like, are you kidding me? Where does the courage and endurance of that magnitude come from? How do you know that despite all of that struggle and trial and persecution that it will ever amount to anything? How do you know it won't all be in vain? That's resurrection hope. And you can hear it in their songs. The fictitious demon Screwtape, he told his young nephew Wormwood that one of the most effective ways to separate a man from God is not to introduce any outlandish sin in his life, but simply to suggest to his mind all sorts of trivial and inconsequential things, such that when a man arrives in hell, he simply laments, I now see that I have spent most of my life in, de- in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. But when our hearts are captivated by resurrection hope, it produces in us a resolve for the Lord's work and for obedience in the present. And this is the whole thrust of Christian mission. We are stuck in between Christ's first coming and his earthly ministry as we anticipate his resurrection when he returns. Our task is to be faithful to his ministry while we wait for our resurrection. Is that your hope this morning? If it is, what are we waiting for? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are astounded by the work of your grace, your victory over death, and that you would seek to share in your victory with a great number, too many to count. I pray, Lord, that you would move us to have resurrection hope, to know for certain that death 
cannot shake us, cannot move us. We have nothing to fear. Or that our hope would move us to abound in your work until we await your return. We thank you. We pray this all in his name. Amen.